All right, well, if you would turn to the sermon passage in your worship guide, Genesis 3, 1 through 9, or if you have your Bible. Or your Bible app. Or if you just like to listen. We're in Genesis 3. Uh, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for your word. Even passages like this that are so hard to read. Lord, we believe that you have something here for us in in your word. And we pray that you would show it to us. And then we pray that you would help us to receive it. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You guys can be seated. Okay, so this, our passage for today is the story of what happened on the second darkest day in all of history. First darkest day was the day that our Lord was crucified. But this is uh, right there almost right up there with it. This is the day that everything fell apart. We've been in this long, slow hike through Genesis 1 through 3, and we actually might we might continue on to Genesis 4, so it might be Genesis 1 through 4. Uh, but the point is, we've, we've been going very slowly, taking note of all of these things. Uh, It's really been a hike. We learned about how God created the universe, and it was good. We learned about how God formed and fashioned the land for his people, and it was good. And God filled it with plant life and vegetation and filled it with animals, and it was good. And then he put people in the garden, created in his image, male and female, bearing the image of God, and it was very good. We learned about how God gave Adam, uh, the man, he gave him a special job to do. 
He was not just a person living there. He was ordained, if you will, to be like the high priest for the whole world. And he had this special job. He had to perform this act of obedience. And if he performed it, then all of humanity would join God in his Sabbath rest. God put the man in the garden. It's when God created the woman out of his side. We learned all about how God created men and women to be uh, have mutual relationships of equality and dependence. It was this beautiful thing. God married them, the man and the woman. We learned some things about marriage. Thus far in the story, everything has been beautiful. And to use the Bible's word, good. And then we get to this. And this is where it all falls apart. This is when we begin to see a little bit of, uh, this is when we begin to recognize the world as our own. Uh, we, we can learn about the good things that God created. And we, we, yeah, I know something about goodness, but here in this story, oh, this becomes the, this becomes the gritty, fallen world that we live in. This is the story that we can trace back to. Next week, we'll get into a little more of the details of this, but this is, this is the moment where everything that we learned about thus far, why it all looks twisted to us now. Why the world does not work like it's described in the beginning. Why all the plant life doesn't flourish like it does in the beginning. Why all the animals don't flourish like they do in the beginning. Why we as human beings don't flourish. Why the relationships between men and women, men and women are broken. Why the relationships between uh, uh, us and the planet are broken. And most of all, why the relationship between us And God is broken. It all happens here on this day. One of the things I kind of struggled, not kind of, definitely struggled with this week in studying this passage is that um, really two things. Number one, this passage contains great darkness. (laughs) And uh, when I first heard this passage, I heard it kind of as a children's story. you know, almost the folktale version. But spending time after we spent months in, you know, in the scriptures before this, getting to this passage, reading and watching what happened on that day between the serpent and the woman and the man is so incredibly dark. It was hard to sit in it all week. And I recognize that it might be hard for us to sit in it this morning. I'm afraid that if this passage isn't hard, then we're not reading it right. That's the first thing. The second thing I struggled with as I studied this is there's so much here, uh, as we have seen in a lot of these passages. Um, I actually put this sermon together twice. What you'll hear is the second sermon I wrote this week. The first one, uh, we just went through verse by verse and made notes, and it would have taken about two hours. And I don't want to subject you to that. But I I tell you that story because that's how complex and rich, even if it's dark richness, how rich this passage is. So as we go through it, I won't be able to hit everything, but I want to hit some 
come on, kind of like skimming your way through a newspaper, just reading the headlines. I want to hit some real important things that we need not miss. Uh, and I don't want to uh, caricaturize the story. I don't want to preach to you the folktale version. We've talked about that a lot as we've studied the Old Testament. So I want to invite you, let's work through this together. Here's the headlines. I want to show you uh, there's four things in this passage that we can learn about sin. Four things about sin. That's the kind of the big idea of this passage. This is the day that sin entered human existence and entered our human world. So four things about sin that we see in this passage. And I think that if we can catch these four things, then the rest of what's here will begin to fill in um, on our own and, and as we read it. But So four things about sin we should learn from this passage. If you're a sermon note taker, this is awesome for you. You number one through four, and at the top right, four things about sin, and you are ready to go, okay? So here's the first one. Sin is about God. Sin is about God. Let's look again at verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Sin is about God. We often think, I know that I often think, when I think about sin, what it is, why it's so bad, what it is and what it does to the world. My primary point of reference often when I think about sin is me. Sin is about the choices I make. Sin is about the areas where I fail, where I rebel. And then sometimes on my less than better days when I think about sin, I think about you or them. Better yet, sin is about what other people do, what people have done to me. Sin is about what bad people do. I like to watch. I like to scroll through, not watch. I like to scroll through the news on my phone. I like that better than watching because I'm in control of it. (laughs) I like to scroll through it and just take note of all the things that those people, whoever they are that day, did. Sin, when I think of it, and I wonder if it's the same when you think of it, is about me and about you. But here we see it's not framed like that at all. If sin is about anybody, it's about God. Consider the way that the snake here speaks to the woman. Now, just a, a, you might know that the snake here is the devil, and that's that is the case here in the story. We learn from John's gospel as well as from John's, the Apostle John's other writings. In the book of Revelation, he identifies the, the snake here as the devil. By the way, devil means accuser. Uh, Jesus himself, 
what you hear about it in John's gospel identifies this snake as the father of lies, the one who leads the whole world astray, who was a murderer from the beginning. Uh, in Revelation, he's called Satan, which means adversary. So we have this story, and the snake is the antagonist. The snake is the bad guy. And then God is the protagonist. God is the good guy in the story. And then human beings in the world that we live in, the human world, is the battlefield. We In this story, we have God, the good guy, and Satan, the bad guy, and the fighting this is this is obviously simplified, but human beings are the are the battlefield. Now, here we have the woman in the garden minding her business, and all of a sudden the snake comes along. It says that he is more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. That word crafty is important. It's um it it when I think of crafty, I think of like sneaky, uh, you know, mischievous. But there's a little bit of that in there, but the Hebrew word there for crafty, it also brings out this idea of um, wisdom, of, um, what do you call it, resourcefulness. So the woman walks up. Remember, the woman doesn't know sin except for the prohibition about the tree. She never experienced it. The woman had never experienced anybody uh, lying to her or being deceptive. And she walks up to what she would know as the wisest, most prudent uh, uh, animal that God had put around it, wild animal that God had put in the land. And she begins a conversation. Why, why wouldn't she? This is the you know trusty old snake. What she didn't know is that the devil, the adversary, the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning was somehow controlling and speaking through this snake. So we begin to see the battle take place. And the, the stakes are high and everything's tense. This is like a climatic in the story. Now, what does the snake need to get the woman to do? Well, he wants to get the woman to eat the fruit, right? Because that was the one thing God said, don't do, eat the fruit. Now, here's the point. This big, bad, antagonist, bad guy, snake in the appearance of wisdom and goodness comes to the woman he needs her to get to do this one little thing and that's exactly something that he doesn't even tell her to do in the conversation this is kind of the difference one of the differences between the folktale version of the story and the bible version of the story and the folktale version of the story as i remember growing up the snake tries really hard to get the woman to eat the fruit But here, the snake doesn't tell her to eat the fruit at all. In fact, he barely even talks about the fruit. What does the snake talk about when he goes to the woman? He talks about God. God is the subject of their conversation. He comes up. Did God really say, first of all, full stop. Thus, remember at the beginning of this, God is uh, called Elohim, which in Hebrew means God, and it was plural, which connotes majesty, reminds us of the Trinity. Remember that? And remember we got to Genesis 2, and then God is then called the Lord God. You can see it in your Bible, and that's Yahweh Elohim. His covenant name, his redeemer name is added. And so we have been using the Lord God as 
you know, the God here in the story. But when the snake comes up, he drops the Lord, the Yahweh, Redeemer, covenant part, and goes back to the generic term for God. So he's, 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 he's doing that on purpose. He says to the woman, did God really say this? He begins to sow seeds of doubt in the woman's memory. Uh, he doesn't say, are you remembering correctly what God said? He questions God directly, not to God himself, to the woman. He introduces uh, what we would call, maybe what we could call, uh, seeds of bad theology in the woman. He begins to introduce an idea of God, not as God is, but in a twisted way. Did God really say this? Can you really trust the thing that God says? Are you sure you're interpreting that right? And the woman responds. Notice in her response, it's a little bit different than the original command. God had told the man back in chapter 2, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, the woman says, the snake comes along, did God really say? And she says, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it. Well, God didn't say that. Or you will die. Some people think that the woman was twisting God's words. I don't think so. Uh, I think the woman was caught off guard because no one had ever questioned God in her presence before. Also, if you remember, the woman was not around when God gave the command not to eat from the tree. God gave the command to Adam, and after that, the woman was created. So she would have heard this command, at least following the story closely. She had to have heard it from Adam. So have you ever played the telephone game where as you pass along the word, it, it, it can change a little bit? Maybe that happens. here. And what's interesting is she shows this weakness of miss saying the command. If I was a serpent, I would have attacked that weakness. But he doesn't. He still talks about God. God remains his target. He says, you will not certainly die. Now he's got called a liar. God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, she's already like God. Remember, she was created in God's image. But he is, the way he's speaking to her, he's drawing her mind's eye away from what she already has and describing this other twisted version saying, you could be like God. Drawing her mind away from the fact that she is like God. But everything he says is an attack against God's character, against God's identity, against God's trustworthiness, against God's word. And he's speaking that to the woman. So when she does eat from the tree, when she does eat the fruit, she's not doing something that's primarily about her. She's doing something that's primarily about God. Sin is not so much about you doing something bad.
Now think about the story of King David. Uh, King David, on one hand, was called a man after God's own heart. On the other hand, uh, he, was, he was a great sinner. And as a king of Israel, when we have, uh, you know, when we have leaders that do the kinds of things that David did in office, we at least should try to oust them. Uh, you know, if you remember right, David uh, used his power as king to, uh, to call Bathsheba in and have sex with her. We would call that rape when somebody uses their power to take that from somebody else. So he's a, he was a rapist. And then to try to cover his actions, he had Bathsheba's husband killed. That makes him a murderer. So we have rapist, murderer. Uh, he definitely, his sin was directed definitely toward Bathsheba, definitely toward Uriah, her husband, but also their family, their community. And because he was the king of Israel, uh, all of the people of God were greatly affected by his sin. But in Isaiah 51, this great repentance confession song that we have in the Bible, he says this to the Lord. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and have I done what's evil in your sight. But David was saying that even though he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and their whole family and the community and the whole community of the people of God, even though he had sinned against them, his sin was against God so much to the degree that it seemed as if nothing else, no other offense mattered except for the one. David is telling us that no matter is, well, David is telling us that whoever you hurt in your sins, whether that be you or somebody else, your offense against God himself is so great that it takes over everything. Sin is primarily about God. That's important. Often in my own sin life, uh, sin happens very often when I want to do something for me. I'm just going to do my little thing over here. I need this one. And it's good to remember that sin is never for me. It's never about me. It's never about you. It's always about God. And to a degree that is staggering and terrifying. Because we can't diminish David's sin against Bathsheba and her husband and their family and the community. We we, we can't make that less to put the, our focus on God. We need to remember that the offense against God is so great that it almost makes what other things that are great and incomprehensible, it almost makes them uh, pale. It makes them pale in comparison. So we should feel that when we read this story, the severity of sin. Sin is about God. Here's, here's the second thing we learn about sin from this passage. Sin is about God. And here's the second thing. Sin comes in different shapes and sizes. Sin comes in different shapes and sizes. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, our Westminster Shorter Catechism has this 
beautiful question. It's really helpful. The question is, what is sin? And the answer goes like this. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or any transgression of the law of God. That's what sin is. It's here's God's law. It's either transgressing it or not conforming to it. A great analogy to help us understand this Westminster Shorter Catechism answer and help us understand sin is is those signs at amusement parks that say, You finally get to the front, and there's the sign with a little with a, with a line, and says you must be this tall to ride. Now, sin is any want of conformity to God's law. That would be like getting to the front of the line, looking at the sign, you must be this tall to ride, and you are too short. You walk up, and I, I guess I'm, I'm too, and you got to turn around and go back home because you can't ride the ride because the seatbelts won't work on you. Right? That's one kind of sin. Not quite conforming to a standard. But there's another kind of sin. It's any lack of conformity or any transgression of God's law. Transgression of God's law framed in that answer would be like if you get to the front, you look, you must be this tall to ride, you're a little bit too short. So what you do, you rip the sign off, you say something terrible, you break it over your knee, you throw it out, and you run and go get on the roller coaster anyway. Conscious, active, decided, first-degree rebellion. What is sin? Well, we have these two kinds. Lack of conformity or straight-up transgression. Now, look at Adam and the woman here. Consider the woman. First Timothy 2, uh, 14, the Apostle Paul, reflecting back on this passage, writes, he says, the woman was deceived and became a sinner. That's important. She became a sinner by way of being deceived. She was tricked. The woman had not personally heard God's prohibition. What she did heard, there's reason to believe from the text that maybe it wasn't quite exactly what God has said. We, we don't, maybe it was, but there's, there's good reason to think maybe not because she misquoted it. Uh, or maybe it had been so much time that, that she sort of forgot, or maybe she was just so caught off guard. But what we do know is her understanding of the prohibition was a little bit weak. We do know that the serpent was crafty. He had the appearance of wisdom. She thought he was trustworthy. And here he comes. She's tricked. She's deceived, and she eats. And then she took, she ate, and then she gave, and then the man, Adam, also ate. Now consider the man. The man had heard the prohibition. The man knew exactly what he was doing. The Apostle Paul, to quote that whole verse in 1 Timothy 2, he says, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, throughout church history, that verse has sort of been thrown around in, in a way that's sort of like, now look how, look how, look how the, look how, you know, dumb the woman is. She was deceived and became a sinner. Adam wasn't deceived. That's not what that verse means. What the verse means when it says 
that Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What Paul means is that Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he ate that fruit. They both became sinners. She was tricked. He wasn't tricked. He was in full-on active transgression rebellion. He had heard the command personally from God. He was standing next to his wife while the serpent was speaking to her and tricking her, and he didn't say anything. He failed as a husband. He was not there to support his wife. He was standing by as she just got marauded by the serpent. And But he also failed, not just as a, just as a husband, he also failed in his job as the high priest. Remember, God had given him a special role. He was supposed to be the priest who cared for the garden, who guarded the garden. He was also the high priest who was the what we would call the federal head of all humanity. He represented the whole of humanity in that moment. So kind of like when King David let the whole kingdom down in his sins, that's what Adam was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He failed as a husband, and he failed as a high priest. It would have required one act of obedience in this moment, and all of humanity enter into Sabbath rest. And Adam says, no, we're not going to do it today. Sin comes in different shapes and sizes. Now, here's, here's, here's the thing. Sin is sin. There is no uh, halfway sin. Every sin is cosmic rebellion. However, some sins are worse than others. And the amount of knowledge that you have regarding God's word, your, the where you stand in, in society, how much power you have, privileges you have been given, and what's going on inside of your mind when you make the decision, does all of these things factor in? I know that sometimes I think when I get mixed up in a little sin, some, there's a little voice inside my head that goes, Charlie, pff, sin is sin, and you've already stepped into it. You might as well go all the way. Have you ever felt that? Some sins are worse than others. So, sin is about God. Sin comes in different shapes and sizes. Here's here's the next thing. Sin and shame come together. Sin and shame come together. Look at verse 7. And they realized that they were naked. So, so they became alert. They became aware of what was actually going on. They were shaken out of their delusion. They realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is a picture of shame. Remember, sin, uh, guilt is there's something wrong with what I did. Shame is there's something wrong with me. Remember that? Well, those always come together. It's interesting that when the serpent, the snake, the devil, the accuser, uh, starts to speak to the woman, he's attacking God, but he, he, he unsettles her, makes her question her memory. Is her memory good enough? It, that, that's interesting. He, sin and shame can come together from the beginning, even in temptation. And as soon as they realized what they had done, realized what was going on, they sewed fig leaves together. That would have taken some time. 
They hid and they covered their nakedness. They realized they were naked. Now, um, there is that peace. Remember last week they were naked and unashamed together. And now they're, they're naked and they need to cover it. Um, I, I don't know if you have ever felt the need to cover yourself, but you might imagine what that feels like. But there's something else going on here. Remember in Genesis 1 when it says that God created mankind in his image, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created him, mankind. Remember that? From the beginning, our sex and God's image were tied together. What are, what's one of the markers of God's image in you? Well, your maleness or your femaleness. And when they sinned, what did they do? They rushed to cover themselves. Where? Sin and shame come together. And shame runs deep. Shame goes to attack the very essence of who you are. There is something wrong with God's image in you. That's the voice of shame. I know that... um, Sin, you know, we know sin separates us from God, but sin also separates us from one another. And that's heavy. So, sin is about God. Sin comes in different shapes and sizes. Sin and shame come together. Here's the last thing. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Here's the last thing. Sin can't keep God away. Sin is about God. Sin comes in different shapes and sizes. Sin and shame come together. And sin cannot keep God away. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. After all of this had calmed down, After it was quiet, after they were hiding, they hid. They're in the trees. And then here we go. We got his redeemer name back, the Lord God. He calls to the man. Now, why did he call to the man? Why not call to the man and the woman? Because remember, the man was the high priest. And he was the greatest offender. But he's calling to him as a priest. He's calling for Adam to stand up and take responsibility for his congregation. He says, where are you? Now, sin can't keep God away. Uh, No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, where you're hiding, uh, God is coming and he's calling, where are you? Not just for you as an individual, but for us as a congregation, as a people. Where are you? And guys, this is either the idea that sin can't keep God away. It's either the most hopeful, beautiful news that you have ever heard, or it's the most terrifying news that you have ever heard. Because there in your hiding, he's coming. It's hopeful if you know the condemnation isn't coming with him. But open arms to say, you know what? Let's, let's fix this. I love you. Uh, you you are my image. You are beautiful. I'm right here. That's comforting. But you're hiding in shame. You're covering the image. 
your eyes are open to the severity of what you've done, and here he comes. I remember as a kid, very often when my dad was at work and I got in trouble with my mom, you know what she would say? Wait till your dad gets home. And you hear the car pull in the driveway, you hear the front door open, you hear the big steps down the hall, and there's terror. It's terrifying. The difference, though, between whether or not the truth that sin can't keep God away, whether or not that's beautiful and comforting, or it's horrible and terrifying, uh, just like sin is about God, it's not really about you. In the same way, whether or not it's terrifying or comforting is not so much about you, it's about God himself and how he is approaching you. What your standing is with him. So Adam sinned and all of humanity goes with him. He failed the test. Well, this is why the story about Jesus being tempted by the devil three times is so important. Because there we see that when, as Adam failed as a high priest, Jesus was successful as a high priest. Jesus said no to the opportunity to to rebel against God. Adam was disobedient. Jesus was obedient. We asked a few weeks ago, are you under Adam's priesthood or are you under Christ's priesthood? And those two, those two statuses, those determine how God's going to come to you, how you're going to experience him. Folks, the gospel is that God has come looking for us. For those in Christ. Because not all of us are in Adam. Those of us in Christ God comes to an obedient people, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done on our behalf. And that in Christ thing, to receive God and experience his love and acceptance, his taking away of our shame, his putting away our sins, no matter what you've done, you're accepted. It's like it didn't even happen. In order to get there, to be in Christ, that's actually available to anyone who would have it. And that's why Jesus said that he had come to seek and save the lost. Are you familiar with John 3.16, the great gospel verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten or unique son that all the believing ones, whoever would believe, would not perish in sin but have eternal life with, with God. You know that verse? Well, the verse that comes right after it might be... The second greatest verse in the whole Bible. But we often forget it. It goes like this. God, it goes like this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So God is coming. And there is a way. There is a way. To experience the beautiful love that he intended from the beginning for humanity, like the sin never, ever happened, as if Adam was obedient and were joined in Sabbath rest. And that way is Jesus. And God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ came. He obeyed and he died. 
grows so we can be accepted. So the story of the second darkest day in all of history is actually a beautiful story. The greatest day ever going to be like when we find your God coming in fullness. And as sinners, as offenders, transgressors, nonconformists, he receives us as sons and daughters. Let's pray.